Why don't we pray one more time, shall we? Heavenly Father, your word is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony, giving wise, giving wisdom to the simple, and enlightening our eyes. We humbly come before you, Father, and ask that you would enlighten our minds this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may understand and profess your word and live according to it. We ask this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I would invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles or your device or whatever it is you use to get to the scriptures and turn or scroll to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. We're in a series um, that we've entitled, Behold Your God. And for those of you who haven't uh, been here, uh, a little context would probably be in order. Um, We have seen uh, thus far that The people of Israel, because of their sin, have been taken out of their native land and carted off to a foreign land. And suffice to say that these folks aren't very happy about it all. We've seen that as we've studied this book together. In fact, we've heard them talk about their way being hidden from the Lord They've spoken of being afraid and at times dismayed. Their world and their own words is one of darkness and and great difficulty. And in today's passage, we're going to see that they lay the blame for all of it right at the feet of God. Now, they're not the first to do that sort of thing, are they? Laying blame at the feet of God. It should remind us of what happened at the fall. When Adam and Eve disobey God, and God comes to them, and in essence says to them, what are you people doing? What what are you thinking? And his old Adam being the man that he is, says, well, it's the woman that you gave me. In other words, it's your fault, God. It's all on you. You know, over the centuries, not a lot has changed, has it? Let's be honest about it. Our lives get a little out of whack Things don't go the way we think they should go. And what do we do with that? We point fingers. Point fingers at our spouse, our spouses. Point finger at us guys, maybe, or gals, guys, guys, gals. Kids, parents, parents, kids. We start pointing fingers. But ultimately, when you get right down to it, we blame God. You're supposed to be in control of it all. 
and it's not working the way I want it to work, then ultimately it's your fault, God. I'm just going to lay it at your feet. And that's what Israel's doing. They're blaming God for all their problems. Well, God has something to say to them and to us. And it's with that that I direct your attention to God's Word. I know that the bulletin says Isaiah 45, but I'm actually going to start reading in Isaiah 44, verse 24, and read through the chapter. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to handle every verse in 45. We'd be here for days. But I do want to take some chunks from 45 that I think are are very helpful, uh, have been to me, and I hope will be to us as a congregation. Isaiah 44, beginning with verse 24, hear now God's word. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. 
And I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over and change and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. Oh, God of Israel, the Savior, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that can't save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago, who declared it of old, was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Whew. A lot there. I want to begin um, this morning with, with a little story. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, when I was a very, very young uh, pastor, I had the privilege of going to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and attending uh, the Desiring God Conference that was sponsored by Bethlehem uh, Church. And following one of his talks, I had the opportunity to speak very briefly with Dr. John Piper. Now, I'm not saying that to tell you I know him. He certainly doesn't know me, and I don't know him. But I really appreciated this time with him. I was, as I was saying, a relatively young pastor, and I was struggling. And I needed a friend, somebody that shoulder I could cry on, quite honestly. But I also need somebody who would speak truth into my life and be gentle in doing it. John Piper became that person for me on this particular day. After one of his talks, I mustered up the courage to approach him and ask him if he had a minute. And he was very gracious and very kind. And he listened so well and he asked very good questions. And he even talked with me some. And 
But one of the things I remembered that was conspicuous by its absence was the actual advice that he offered to fix my problem. What he did do was pray for me. And in his prayer, he said something that I've carried with me ever since. And he said this. He said, Father, as you send Steve back to South Carolina, may he become and may he always be a velvet-covered brick. I took that to mean, may he be truthful. May he say what he needs to be said. But may he be soft and gracious in doing it. I never got over that. I'm still working on the soft and gracious part. We usually have any problem being truthful. Fortunately for us, we serve a God who is both. Here in this passage, we have what I believe to be just a beautiful picture of God being a velvet-covered brick toward his people. Israel needed the truth. They needed the truth about who God is and who they were not. And yet they needed to be handled gently. Because as you'll recall in our studies, they are a bruised and battered and broken people. And so God comes to them. And he comes to us this morning to be just that. Through his word, a velvet-covered brick. There are three things from this text that I'd like for us to consider this morning. First of all, God's complete control over everything that happens in our lives. He is indeed sovereign. Secondly, his fatherly care or his concern for us as his people. And finally, his gracious invitation to just trusting. Let's start with this idea of God's complete control over our lives. Isaiah wants the Jewish people, and he wants you and I to recognize that God always has, presently is, and will continue to be in control of their lives and our own. And to drive this point home, in chapter 44 and verse 24, Isaiah reminds them of something. Look at it, if you would, once again with me. He says, I am the Lord who made all things. He goes on in verse 24 and 25 to make reference to the actual creation. When at the beginning of the foundations of the world, God established the foundations of the earth. He created all things. He made all things. He is indeed a God of the past. And Isaiah draws their attention to that and reminds them of the fact that he is a God of the past. That he is the creator of all things. Then in verse 25 of chapter, 20, of chapter 44, he brings them to the present. When he says this, he says, I frustrate the signs of liars, make fools of diviners. I turn men back and make their knowledge foolish. Here he's talking about the present time in which they live. He goes on in verse 5 of chapter 45 by saying, I am the Lord, there is no other. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know me from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I'm the Lord, there is no other. I form light, I create darkness, 
I make well-being, I create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. In other words, I am not only a God of the past who has done things, but I am a God of the present who is doing things. I am in charge. I am in control of all things. Isaiah wanted these people to know that and to come to terms with that. So he's a God of the past. He's a God of the present. But look at verse 26 of chapter 44 again. He is also a God of the future. Here in this verse, God speaks of Jerusalem. He says, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. What's he doing there? He's looking out into the future. I've got a plan. I'm working that plan out. And so what Isaiah wants these folks to see, and he wants you and I to see, that this God of ours is sovereign over the past, over the present, and over the future. Now I ask you this morning, why does he take so much time to point that out? Why does he do that? In all likelihood, they probably had a little problem ascribing sovereignty or control to God in the past. They were all over that. But because of what we see in this passage, I wonder if they're not wrestling with God's control in the present, or even better, in the future. That's a different story for these people. It's the same for us, isn't it? We don't have any problem looking back and seeing where God was, but it's right in the here and now, the messiness, stickiness of life, and the unknown about tomorrow, we wrestle. Is, is he really running the show? There are those who have taught for many years that God created the earth, spun it, walked away, and that was it. That's a lie, according to this passage. But these people were struggling with this. They were struggling with, with the God's control over especially the future. And let me tell you why. God lays before these people how he's going to get them back home. And it sounds like the craziest idea they'd ever heard. In chapter 44, verse 28, and continuing into chapter 45, verse 1, he brings up the name of this guy by the name of Cyrus. Now, what do we know about Cyrus? Well, he was actually known as Cyrus the Great. He was a big deal, especially in his own mind. He was a Persian king. And we know from Isaiah 45 verse 4 that he did not know God. And yet God is going to take this guy to defeat Babylon, set the Jewish people free, and bring them back home to rebuild Jerusalem. Now let me ask you something. You put yourself in the Jews' sandals for a minute. You hear something like that, you can understand why they couldn't help but say, really, God? I mean, this guy, he's a Gentile. I mean, God, you, Isaiah has been critical of idols and, and idolaters, and Cyrus was an idolater. You say, oh, yeah, but after defeating Babylon, didn't he acknowledge God? Yes, he did. 
In fact, he did the same thing when he freed the Jews to go back home. He acknowledged God then. Brothers and sisters, I, I would argue this morning that that was just his way of being a politician. That's all it was. Here's why. The fact of the matter is, he freed all the foreigners enslaved in Babylon. He could care less about the Jews or their God. And yet God calls this pagan politician his shepherd and speaks of him as some anointed Messiah-like figure. What are we to make of that? Ray Ortland has written a commentary on the book of Isaiah that's outstanding, and here's what he says. He says, in his mastery of all things, God uses whatever persons and methods he wants to use, whether we like them or not. He's not defeated by the gritty realities of human history. He's using them for a redemptive purpose. End quote. Our sovereign God has a purpose, and he will do whatever with whomever he wishes to accomplish his purposes, and he will accomplish them. Did you hear how emphatic this is driven home in Isaiah 45, 2 and 3? Notice how emphatic God is about what he will do. I will do these things. Notice in verse 3 of Isaiah 45 why he is doing it. He says, I am doing it that, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Note who he's doing it for. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm doing it so those beyond my own people will know that I am God. He says in Isaiah 45 verse 6 that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. How do we argue with that? Why does God remind his people of these things? Why does he remind you and I of his sovereignty in this passage? Very simply, we forget it. We forget it. Earlier I talked about those who teach that God created the world, walked away from it, and left it to its own to spin. And that sounded critical, and it probably was. But here's a real tough part. Sometimes we live like that. We live like we really we want to shoot at those folks, but we live like that's the way our lives work themselves out. Well, we wake up one day only to realize that, guess what? We're not in charge of the universe. We're just not. I have a, a pastor friend who, at a very early age, began to catechize his sons. He had a couple of them. And um, he didn't catechize them in the WCF. I don't think he had a problem with the WCF, the Westminster Confession. But he wrote his own catechism. And here was the first question to his boys. Is there a God? And he taught his boys to repeat and to answer in this way, yes and I am not him. Good lesson. Is there a God? Yes. And guess what? None of us are him. 
if we learn anything from this text, it is that it is God's world to do with as he wishes, with whomever he wishes, and we need to learn how to live in it. And dare I say, learn from it. That's hard, isn't it? We struggle with that, which leads us to the second point in our passage this morning, and that is God's fatherly concern. I don't know about you, but if I'm God in this situation, which I'm not, I just talked about that, I'm done with this crowd. I've had it. I mean, it's pretty obvious that it just goes without saying these people who are off in exile, I mean, there's going to be fallout, right, from what they're hearing here about this guy Cyrus. They had such high hopes of, of, of getting out of the mess they were in. And yet, Alec Motier says this in his commentary from Isaiah. He says, under a Gentile liberator, the people would in principle return to the same situation from which they had been deported. The times of the Gentiles would continue in Jerusalem. There would be no sovereign state, no Davidic revival. The Cyrus plan was the death knell to all such hopes. End quote. And so therefore, it should come as no surprise to us that these people who were off in exile... They're struggling. They really are. And, and you get a taste of their struggle in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 45 when you read words like striving. Who are you to strive against me? And then there are these obvious questions that, that they have and God uses. They have questions of God. Well, what are you doing? Now, let me, let me just say something here. Is God offended by our questions? No. Go read the Psalms. A lot of questions being asked in the Psalms. He's not offended at our questions, but I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that it grieves him deeply when we accuse him of just not knowing what he's doing with our lives. It grieves him deeply. Where do I get that idea? Right here in this passage. And the way Isaiah uses the word woe in verse 9. And again in verse 10, woe. That word woe is a, a cry of lament. It's a term that's often used in a funeral. And it's as if God is saying, I'm I'm sorry you feel as you do about me. I, I'm sorry. I, I lament that you won't let me be God to you. That you're just hardwired to do things your own way. God laments over that. And yet, watch what he does. Watch his fatherly care. He, he comes to these folks and he starts to ask them questions. Now, just let that sink in. Here's the God of the universe who created everything, who runs the whole show, and, and he stoops, if you will, to ask these people questions 
to help them connect with and come to terms with the way they're thinking. Is that not a loving, gracious thing for him to do? In verse 9, he uses this analogy of a, of a potter and clay. And what he's basically saying with it all is that if a potter can't be questioned about what he's doing, can a parent be? He then, in verse 11, makes application to Israel. And he says, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? In other words, are you going to tell me how to run the show? Really? <laughs> and yet, I, I just sense a gentleness about it. Most scholars believe that the way Isaiah uses the words the Lord here in this passage hearken back to the Exodus. And Motir says that was a time, a great act of parenting when God established a relationship between the Lord and his people. And more than that, it began a process in which God began to mold his people into who he wanted them to be. When you take that understanding and you look at it, this passage, it makes sense. God's trying to parent these people. He's trying to father them. He's trying to daddy them along, if you will. Now, is there a sense of rebuke in it? Yes. There's a brick there. And there's a warning in these woes, I would suggest. And it's a lesson for us today. I'm reminded of Psalm 131. Don't turn there, but just listen. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother's like, like with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. When the psalmist says, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, what's he saying? What's Isaiah saying here to these people? This sounds rude, and I don't mean it like this. I'm just going to say it. Y'all just need to mind your own business is what he's saying. You just need to look at what's right in front of you. Pour yourself into that. And let me stay in charge of running the universe. I got it. I can do it. I know what I'm doing. I'm powerful enough to pull it off. Just, just let, me, let me do that. It's, it's kind of a word of comfort, isn't it? Just, just relax. <laughs> I've, I've got it. And so we've seen here in this passage that God is in complete control of everything. We've seen his fatherly concern for his people. But then finally, there's this gracious invitation. <laughs> this gracious invitation just to trust him. In verses 14 through 17 of Isaiah 45, he paints this picture of the future. What a picture it is. It, it, here's this group of people. They're off in exile, and all they want is to return to something that looks just a little normal. And God comes to them and says, I've got something extraordinary planned for you. All those idols that you've been running to that Reed pointed us out last week, 
I'm going to save you from all that craziness. I'm going to deliver you from all of that. In verse 17, he describes what it's going to look like. Notice what he says in Isaiah 45, 17. But Israel is saved by the Lord. In other words, who's going to do the saving? The Lord will. It will be, according to 17, an everlasting salvation. It will be everlasting in duration. It will never stop. And thirdly, unlike those they have been turning to, it will not disappoint. It will not. It will be a sweet, sweet salvation. And then, see what God does. In verse 20, I just love this. He says, assemble yourselves. Come here. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. That word survivor is often translated as fugitive. And quite frankly, I like that better in this particular context. And let me tell you why. A fugitive's running from something. It's a word that implies danger. What God is saying is, stop running from me and toward that craziness and run to me. Assemble together with me. Turn to me, verse 22 says, and be saved all the ends of the earth. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't don't miss what God's doing here in this passage. I know it's starting to sound like a broken record as we work through this book together, but he's reminding them of who he is. He's in charge of everything. He's sovereign. He's come to them like a a loving father to say, I care for you and I'm concerned about you. Now here he is with this invitation saying, "Just, just trust me. Trust me. Verse 22 says, I'm God and there is no other. And 23 says he is worthy of our utmost allegiance. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That should sound familiar to you if you know the New Testament. For it was the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 who quotes those very words to describe our Lord saying, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of who? Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, friends, Here in this passage, God is calling you. He is calling us to turn to him, to submit to him, to trust him because he is in control and he does care for us as his people. Today you may be here and you don't know him. I plead with you on the basis of the authority of God's word as it's given to us in Psalm 2:12, kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled.
but blessed are those who take refuge in Him. If you are not walking with God today, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. Some of you are here today and you're not in a good place in your walk with God. You identify with the Israelites. You're unhappy with the way your life is playing out. You're blaming others for it, maybe even God. What are you to do with that? Repent. Humble yourselves. Come to Jesus and tell Jesus, I've been acting like a knucklehead. I submit myself. I come under your guidance, under your tutelage. I trust you. I don't understand it all, Lord, but I trust you with what you're doing in my heart and life. Would you do that? Would you trust him? Our God is a great God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you that though our sins are many, your grace is more. And that you invite us to come and to drink and to eat. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for this great salvation that is ours and our Lord, the the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray now that as we prepare to come to this table, that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, to do so. I pray that even in this hour, that we will experience the same grace and same mercy that we have heard of and we have marinated in even this day. Hear our prayer as we pray it in Christ's name.